episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. This week is with DP Sean Porter. Uh, Sean's career is off to an incredible start. Uh, his last three movies alone were Green Room, starring Patrick Stewart, Anton Yelchin, and uh, then off to 20th Century Woman with Annette Benning, Elle Fanning. And then the one that is out right now is Rough Night with Scarlett Johansson, Kate McKinnon, Zoe Kravitz, Alana Glazer. Uh, really just an unbelievable cast and a really funny comedy. And I mean, I'm just thrilled with the conversation that we had. It's um, it's cool to speak to a cinematographer that is, uh, with Rough Night, has just gotten his first major studio film. And so, you know, we try and speak with artists who are on some sort of transformation or on some sort of um, transition. He's still in a transition. It's just of a, of a higher degree. And his ability to talk about that and the changes between that. And we also spoke a lot about uh, another movie that he did called Kumiko, um, which is a, it's a gorgeous film and um, very different from honestly all three. It's much more, it's much slower, quiet, and the cinematography really is uh, gorgeous in it. And so, you know, comparing Rough Night to Kumiko and the journey he's been on and how he's dealt with everything has, um, it, it made for a great conversation because I think Sean is really able to articulate it well and speak about his philosophy, his concepts about how do you navigate the waters and, you know, essentially the politics of this world in addition to the, the, the artistic side of things. And that's, I think, you know, right right uh, exactly where this conversation strives to be uh, for this podcast. So really awesome. And um, by all means, check out his work. Uh, all four of those movies are great. I just saw Rough Night the other night, and it, it's hilarious. Um, really uh, the type of comedy that never has a, a moment that loses its steam. And so especially from a cinematographer standpoint, to come out to, to do that, which is definitely a more traditional filming of a comedy in terms of, you know, it's not as selective in its lighting and it really is there to let the actors do their thing versus Kumiko or even Green Room, you know, which is definitely moodier, contrastier, uh, more specific in what it's doing uh, lighting wise. Um, it's cool that that's coming from the same person. Uh, who with each job is trying to expand what he's capable of doing and trying to really work on it and make it more well-rounded and allow the um, the uh, allow the movie to dictate his approach and not the other way around. And that was a, a big takeaway from this that um, was great to hear from someone who is achieving at such a high level that that, that type of mentality has taken him this far because you, you, never, you never know... Um, what does and, and and it's nice to have those things reinforced by someone who is uh, who is doing so well. Just some housekeeping: if you can like and comment on iTunes, that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further. We're on all social media channels at AVC Pod. That's our handle. And for any inquiries, questions, or uh, guest ideas, you can email uh, this show's producer Courtney Ryan at Courtney at AVCPod.com. So this week, cinematographer Sean Porter. I had done a comedy previously. It was one of my first movies a long, long time ago. A little movie in Seattle called Grassroots. That was like campaign, like Grassroots campaign movie. Um, and that was maybe my first. And even then, like, you know, I guess all comedies are still going to have some element of drama to them um, or pathos or something. But, but that was maybe the, the closest thing and in very different movies. So, yeah, I mean, doing something for Sony, doing something that's, you know, going to have a big release. 
uh, it was a crazy experience because when that trailer came out and whatever, three and a half million people watched it in the first couple of weeks. I'm like, I think more people have seen that trailer than seen <laughs> all my other movies combined. You know? like, and even, yeah, even considering the success of like Green Room and 20th Century Woman. Yeah. It's just a different scale, you know, it's just a different scale. I guess scale. so. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's always the art house crowd and they'll love movies like Mike's and Green Room and, you know, Green Room could end up being a little bit of a cult classic, but even still, you know, it's a movie that goes to Sundance and even can, and a lot of people see it and it gets a lot of notoriety and certainly got a lot of interest because of that movie and a lot of people, you know, took interviews and everything. Um, but still in the scheme of things, you know, it's a small, small film experience in terms yeah. of reach. And you look at a movie like this that's like, you know, on billboards and postered all over L.A. And, you know, it's just uh, it's a different kind of machine, different kind of movie. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even hearing you talk about this inspires so many questions, but I kind of don't want to yeah. get lost. Um, sure, just sure. to go just to go back, like when you when you first started out, was it were you sure that you wanted to be a DP the whole time or were you wrestling with a few different roles that you were thinking about or had interest in? Well, I know my, my filmmaking history is kind of a strange one. I um, We grew up in a small town outside of Seattle, maybe like an hour, hour and a half outside of Seattle. I mean, I wouldn't say it was rural, but like mega suburbia. Like there was, you know, not a lot going on. <laughs> we were pretty excited when the town got its first like fast food restaurant. Like it was pretty, pretty yeah. small. Um, and in a way, uh, filmmaking was, was kind of a, an alternative cure to boredom. My parents had an old VHS camcorder and I was one of three brothers and a sister and I was the oldest and, you know, we kind of just fooled around and made all kinds of stuff on our own growing mm. up, started playing around with miniatures and like using our cat and like, you know, finding you know this was also just happened to coincide when like i'm like gonna get super geeky for a second but when movie magic movie magic was on uh god i can't remember maybe it was discovery channel and it was just like our favorite show and i think you know we grew up watching i wouldn't say my parents had like a um complex taste in films we grew up watching a lot of like full-on you know 80s and 90s comedies you know dan Aykroyd movies chevy chase movies Mel Brooks films like this is my parents love that stuff we watched Indiana Jones and so no no art house not a lot of foreign it was just like kind of pop culture movies but it was still very much into it like you know oh yeah no and it's I mean and there were some really great films but that was kind of our upbringing and so that was you know obviously my influences and then when movie magic you know really started picking up as a show uh and they kind of tailored toward more of the pop culture film scene um, it was just so eye-opening and exciting to see, like, oh, wow, like, you know, people just did this stuff. You know, they made Star Wars with these little miniature model cities and all of these things. And, and I think that just really, that turned something on, you know, inside me and, and certainly mm. my brothers. My brothers are both still involved in film to an extent. Um, and so we just kind of started making stuff. And I think that also there was a natural curiosity with technology that I just couldn't, couldn't get rid of you know and this was from a really early age i mean i remember having a set of vr goggles like way before you know like the first yeah. time it was popular lawnmower that's, man was coming out and, <laughs> and like that's something that's really like necessary for a dp i think over other like i think that's kind of maybe sometimes the main difference between a dp and a director because both love story but one is kind of 
transfixed One's on kind of the technical aspects. Yeah, which it could definitely was not always the best thing, but I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's ultimately what happened is I do I do have a fascination with, with the technology side of it. But kinda, you know, those things can be at odds with each other. And so I was constantly kinda trying to navigate all that. And so anyway, I'm like making these little movies as a kid and we're like doing all this crazy stuff and then uh, I mean, I was experimenting with green screen way before any sort of online editors were available, especially to like 13 and 15 year olds. Yeah. Um, and then we moved to a suburb of Seattle in the middle of my high school year. And all of a sudden we went from this tiny town to like a really major city. And um, all of a sudden uh, I had access to vocational programs at high school and all of these things that I didn't before. And, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, like people do this for a living. Like I could go to school for this. Um, and even then it was still broadcast, you know, surrounding broadcast and radio. So it was a very different, sure. it was like very technical. It was like, oh, you're going to go to this school and then you're going to go work for the news station. Um, but we got to learn Avid. We got to learn more high-end cameras, AB roll editing and all this stuff. And I think that was my first experience working, you know, collaboratively with other people besides my siblings. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and having a story, having something written down and like, okay, let's figure out how to, way to put this together. Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, I'm curious because to me, especially once I'm, once I'm talking with people who have achieved a certain level of success, especially hearing that, you know, at least early on, there wasn't any sort of formal teaching about how to navigate uh, the waters that get you to where you are now, like a lot of people, and that makes sense because, you know, it's a, a slim, slim margins of success to that level where, you know, you're going to be taught about, yeah, the natural thing is to maybe do news, maybe do this because people are trying to be somewhat realistic, but the, <laughs> right. you know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, but, but the, like the way that the way I'm curious um, to get into the details about how you navigated um, from I would imagine, you know, just small indie projects to where you are now, because that seems to be, that seems to be really tricky. It is tricky. And I mean, I think, I guess just to connect the dots, I mean, I moved on past high, you know, high school, went to the University of Washington. There was no proper film school there either. I actually applied to USC um, as an undergrad and didn't get in. And then I was like, ah, fuck it. I'll just stay in Seattle, go to UW. It's cheap. And, and kind of ended up piecemealing my own version of film school I did a lot of comparative literature, film studies classes. I did physics classes that were about light and science and color. I did um, visualization and CAD drawing, 3D animation. Mm -hmm. I kind of like everything that like had anything to do with film, I kind of just latched onto. And, you know, by the time I was finished, they kind of let me pull a, a general studies major out of all of it. And But something happened in the middle of my experience at the UW where a new program opened that had was actually – kind of a transplant or pickup from a pro, you know, project, I think it was in Berkeley, um, but this professor started a program called DX Arts, and it wasn't a film school, but it was like the closest thing we were going to get, and it was a, um, it was kind of like art school, but using a video camera instead of a paintbrush or pencil, and so um, it was very formal in that, you know, you'd produce a project, they're all very personal projects, and then there was like a formal crit, people would sit down and like tear everyone's stuff apart. And yeah. there's no, like, like our, their version of training was like, oh, here's like a one-day master class on uh, Final Cut or on, yeah. you know, some software. So you weren't, cool. you weren't, you were trained a little bit, but it wasn't the same type of formal cinema no, uh, education that like USC does. Totally. It was, in fact, it was quite the opposite. It was like, we're not going to let you guys work together as teams. You're going to go out and make these like video haikus 
and really like dig into like your personal relationship to the media, which was kind of great because that's what you don't get in those film schools. Film schools are like, oh, like you got to put these projects together, you got to get other people involved, you got to, have, you yeah. know, you're like pining for people's attention to get the right, you know, to get like the coolest DP and and all this stuff. And in fact, we went the other way, where at a certain point toward the end of the program, you know, there's a handful of us that wanted to be narrative filmmakers, and we kind of eventually like talked to, you know, talked to the professors into letting us finally collaborate. And so I kind of had a chance at shooting other people's work, and and just naturally found I just felt like I was in a better rhythm there. I had been directing my own shorts for years at that point and even ended up going on and directing a feature-length doc. Um, but you're right, like, I could never fully, like, as much as I enjoyed it, I enjoyed the process of interpreting someone else's ideas so much more. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I don't know, and I still get asked this all the time, like, oh, are you going gonna to direct? Because it's not, you know, it does happen, and I have some great, the very few mentors I did get in Seattle, um, one of which, Ben Kofolke, is like just this amazing, great DT, great human. And ever since I've always known him for, you know, over a decade, he's, you know, the end result is directing. And then I think a lot of people see DPs as like, oh, you're you're doing this, but you really want to direct. And and I just partly, you know, I see what they go through. And it's, and, and it was the same thing when I gaffed. I gaffed for, you know, several years out of after I got out of university. I went uh, gaffed and AC'd for several years just to be on sets. And, and you know, there was a piece to gaffing because you get to really focus on the creative a little bit more. You always really watch yeah. the DP and like half of their job is politics and 80% of a director's job is politics. And then you become, you get into you, yourself into those roles and you realize it's way worse than you ever imagined. I mean, like on a film like Rough Night, 98% of your job is logistics and politics and managing crew and locate and like making sure the movie's going to happen. And then in the wee hours of the night, you get like this little 2% to like think about how you're actually going to like do it on any sort of creative level. Well, it's nice to hear that because, you know, I think a lot of us are dealing with politics, even on a much smaller level, especially, you know, if you're if you're earning your money um, from either like corporate stuff or branded content and you think, oh, man, only if, if only I was doing big narrative stuff, I would just be able to like think about the narrative. But that's not I don't think that ever changes. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't ever change. It really doesn't. And ironically enough, I've been in the commercial world for the last, jeez, uh, almost a year and a half. Um, ever since Rough Night, I'm kind of waiting on my next movie. And, uh, and you know, there's always this feeling like, oh, commercials are like, you know, lifeless, soulless, like you're not doing anything artistic. And I got to say, it's like, it's, it's, it's at least as creative, you know, in terms of how much uh, influence you have over the look and, and mm-hmm. your ideas about shot making. Um, you know, in a movie like Rough Night, you basically are on a three-month-long commercial. It's not, you know, in Mike Mills' movie, it's like if we did a take and we were happy, it was kind of like, great, like, let's move on. And, you know, obviously more or less it was the same with Lucia, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. In there's this. kind of a feeling, like, studio kind of gives the same feeling that a, that client does on a commercial exactly, set. Exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, you're making the, like, there is somebody backing and investing in this thing and putting a lot of money into it. And, you know, they kind of want their interests represented. They put in their full faith in Lucia and, and I, which is amazing. But, they're, you know, at the same time, like, people are watching dailies. Like, they just want to, you know, they want to make sure that the movie's getting made, you know, in, in something in line with what they're thinking. Um, but I guess, say to get back to your um, earlier question about navigating, I mean, if I had any real good idea, I would write it down and share it with people. I I don't know how it happens, and I feel like, a lot of it is having a keen discernment on what those projects you're going to do are. 
Obviously, you have to break into features, which for a lot of DPs is the hardest step. I mean, I, I did shorts, I gaffed for years, I AC'd for years, I worked on movies, um, but always was shooting. And I'd shoot whatever anyone would let me. And, you know, you know, 48-hour film festivals ended up being like a great in because people were desperate. And especially in Seattle, you don't have this huge crew base. So if you were willing to do a job, nine times out of ten, someone would let you do it just because they know you'll do it for free and because you're going to care. Um, and so in that sense, Seattle was a great place to start because you could kind of dabble in whatever. And if you wanted to do one movie in the art department and the next movie you want to be in the camera department, like you could kind of do that um, yeah. at least for a while, where in other cities, like you, you, you couldn't really get away with that. So then let me ask this question, because that all makes perfect sense to me. And I mean, I think that it really, that does separate the people who really care about the craft versus those who maybe might not be sure. Um, sure. Because the other thing, too, at a certain point, I would imagine, but correct me if I'm wrong, that at some point there was some sort of discernment in project selection and trying to be careful about what you were choosing because of either belief in the work or the director or that these things will lead me. And and at what point do you feel like that happened if it did and and do you have any ideas on that rubric yeah that's the that is the trick like you know and if there's something that an aspiring dp needs to be aware of i would say that's it's a big one and because it can go both ways and you can really get you can kind of get yourself in trouble right off the bat i think that um i'm trying to think i did get offers on some features and to be fair i guess my first first movie was actually like this really terrible thing that I can't talk about and though hopefully I don't think anyone's ever going to see it thank god um but you know it was an opportunity to, it was an opportunity to shoot a movie uh, on yeah. a film no less and and so I did it and we roped a bunch of people in and, and it was a miserable experience that I won't get into but anyway from there you know you it's all about building confidence and every short you do every documentary yeah. you do I did several documentaries too early on which are amazing training grounds because you're stripped of all your tools. You're given a camera, and yeah. and that's kind of it. And you're going to get thrown into situations that you don't know what the outcomes of those situations are. You don't know uh, where people are going to go. Most of the time, you don't even know the location until you're there. So you end up getting really good about, okay, well, if these people are standing here and I can't control that, I can control me. I can control where the camera goes. And then you start thinking in terms of shot making because you're like, well, does this shot work as a wide for the content? Yes or no. And then you're like making all of these last minute little decisions all the time, a hundred times a second. And I think that's great training for narrative because then when you finally get that opportunity to look at a location ahead of time, your mind's still clicking at that rate. And you're like, okay, great. Well, if we put people here and we put the camera here and we're next to this window, this will all work. And if we can avoid all these other things we don't want to see, like those are all part of the skills. But in terms of this discernment thing, it's like, you do all of this prep, you work and work and build up confidence and you build up a reel and maybe it's just shorts and music videos, but you got to get to a place where you're getting asked to do movies. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it didn't happen for me until I did this uh, movie called Bass Backwards. And the funny thing is up until that point, great title. Yeah. Up until that point I was doing, I had been doing some docs, but I would, it was all my shorts were more formal and very lit and like more about the craft of cinematography or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. then I got this opportunity to work with a filmmaker that I really believed in. And it was like, you're going to take this camera and we're going to, and there's no script really. And we're just going to like make this thing up. And I did sound and pulled my own focus and was my own camera operator. And the director was like the lead actor and also did sound. And we had somebody helping us with the production. So very, like, very typical first narrative very type Very typical stuff. first narrative. And I think that had that film done worse, 
or had that filmmaker not had the vision that he did, it maybe maybe my career would have looked very differently. But you know, I believed in him, and I was like, you know, it's amazing how much is writing on that on in the beginning. Like it's so fragile in the beginning. It kind of is. And so in that sense, I'd say, you know, it's okay to do a, a really bad movie that no one's going to see as long as you can make sure you can kind of bury it. But if you are going to do a movie that you think has potential, like make sure you can nail it and then really go for it. And, and it was a hard movie, Bass Ackwards, because we just, we really had nothing. So it, it was tapping into more of my, back, my documentary background. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I really believed in Linus and what he was doing. And sure enough, he makes this tiny little movie that gets into Sundance. And um, and that's really when it all started. And Did you have, did you guys have a feeling that that was going to happen on set? No idea. No idea. I was, it was like such a long shot. And I think it was the first year of their next program. And that was probably the only reason we got in. Um, hey, but he really made awesome. this charming, charming little movie. And, um, and a director, um, Stephen Jonal of... Jake and Maggie saw it and uh, was gearing up for his little comedy grassroots in Seattle. And, you know, and he talked to a lot of other DPs that had way more experience. I only had one movie at that point. And, um, and he just liked what he saw and he liked the energy. And that got me. Well, this is, well, this is a question, too, because it's like, you know, you, you do a little indie that surprises you that it got into Sundance and you go. And I mean, you, were you feeling pressure of like, how do I do well at this event? And like, who do I need to talk to? And was that, that must have been nerve wracking. And how do you um, come out? You came out of it, I guess, outperforming a lot of people to get that job. And that just seems like, what do you think you did right? What happened? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I think that I'm not the world's best networker. Um, if Ben Kosolke teaches a class on networking, I will totally attend it. He's amazing. But I think, you know, what I did is I stuck close to the director. I'm like, you know, they're the ones mm-hmm. who are going to have the agenda. The producers are putting them up for interviews. I'm just going to be like, not their tag along, but more their wingman and just there to support them in any way I can. That's got to look good, too, because I think sometimes DPs that try to shine brighter than the director in these situations, it bites them in the ass, right? I think so. And I think, you know, we're all there for the film. And so it's like yeah. I, I another thing is like you can't go to those festivals and be like, oh, I'm going to like kind of enjoy it and watch movies and kind of support this movie. It's like it's a job and you go there and you just commit to it being a job. And mm. then and then it's not so stressful. It, a few times I try to go and like half see movies and half enjoy myself and try to go to parties and you know and it ends up not actually succeeding in any of those things so when i go (laughs) to those festivals i'm really like i'm here to support the work whatever you guys want me to do i'm just going to be available whether it's an interview or whether it's just to be with the director um whatever that looks like to be on a panel or something like that and i think it's I get more out of it because it's a, it's a chance to give back to that project. Because you're right, the success of that movie is directly going to affect uh, the outcome of my next job opportunity, really. And I think that just, yeah, I think that's my general attitude is go there and, and support. I was very supportive of Linus in the project, and he got a lot of notoriety for that movie. And that, you know, kind of unlocked the next level. It's like you're playing a video game, and you're really just trying to get, you're trying to find that thing that piece to the puzzle that's going to unlock the next level. And, and they don't always intersect the way you think they are. I mean, fast backwards to grassroots, like, okay, I can kind of see it. They're both kind of comedies. They're both kind of dramedies. Like it makes sense. Um, But I went from grassroots to Eden, which I don't know how that happened. And, 
And really, I think that relationship with Megan Griffiths had been building for a really long time. She was an AD in Seattle for years and years. And before that, even a DP, and a great DP. DP. Um, and part of it was I just wasn't enough work in Seattle, and so she started picking up AD jobs. And, um, and we worked together mostly as crew for a really long time. And, and it's the same thing. Like, between Grassroots and Bass Ackwards, I kind of unlocked this key of like okay like this guy can put a movie together and see it through and there's some sense of consistency there and these movies may not be amazing movies but they're getting done well that that actually spawns a a few things that i'm learning from this and it's it's nice to hear is that i mean essentially you're just sticking to the job and allowing that to be the guiding light in these situations that that's working out and that's nice because i think that's that's way more chewable than like needing to kind of you know, make yourself uncomfortable by feeling the need to boast or be more extroverted if you're not comfortable doing that or whatever. But then also, I would imagine, were you, did other opportunities come and you decided not to take them because they didn't feel right? Like, right. So this is where the little this is where the this is where the, the part the, the job gets really tricky. So you know, we moved to New York um, right, I guess, right before Grassroots happened. So and this is also going to happen. Like you know, you're in a small community. You get a few products under your belt. You realize there's going to be a glass ceiling there, and you have this. And all my mentors went through this, and you have to make this call. You're like, okay, well, I can either stay here and try to like get into the I don't know what yet branded content. This was before branded content. This would have been like, you know, internal Microsoft videos or something like. And those jobs have already been filled up, and they've been filled up for years. So if you're like, if you're going to commit to narrative filmmaking, you can't stay in these small places. You got to leave. So it was New yeah. York or L.A. All my mentors had spread all over the place. So we went to New York, and then, ironically, of course, after you leave, now you somehow have a little bit more clout because, like, oh, like, he somehow made it. He moved to New York. Even though we were piss broke, like, literally my wife got in an accident in our old beat-up Volvo like two weeks before, and the insurance company gave us a couple grand, and we're like, great, let's move to New York. We had nothing, (laughs) and we – and but by being there, you know, now we're like now I'm a New York DP. This was also around the time where I was like, you know, two two big changes happened. One, I had been gaffing and ACing and doing these other things alongside shooting, and I was just like, you know what, I'm gonna this is gonna be hard, and I'm gonna be really poor. I'm just gonna shoot, and I just have to like commit to it. And that's a really hard thing to do. And a lot of my other DP peers um, struggled with that for a long time because they were starting to kind of get good gigs. Like you start mm-hmm. gaffing on commercials, you start seeing on commercials or on TV. All of a sudden, you're making you start making money. money. You start making money, and you get used to that lifestyle. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Like this DP thing, this indie DP thing, it doesn't look so good. Um, and then they keep dabbling in it, and they're like, oh, I want to try, I want to try. And it's like you're trying to quit smoking, and it's like, well, I'll quit gaffing <laughs> for a few months, and and then they always come back to it, you know, because they miss that they miss that paycheck. I kind of jumped in early enough where I was still used to being poor. So it didn't feel like it's so that. funny. That makes a lot of sense. And then also, I would also imagine, you know, you also get used to commercial sets in terms of manpower, budgetary power for gear and stuff like you go, you come off of, you know, being on a, who knows, a six and six G and E team crew and there's a techno crane. And then you have to like, you know, pull your own focus running around like a madman on the weekends. Like it can feel like a step back, even though it's not right. So in a way, like I think, I think avoiding that to an extent. Obviously, everyone's got to like make make ends meet, but avoiding that, if you can, I think is better because it, you build from the ground up rather than the other way around. So anyway, getting mm-hmm. back to this, this um, having to say no, 
that ends up being the hardest part because let's say, you know, now I've done grassroots. I get this email from Megan to do Eden. I'm like, wow, this is like a legit movie. It's like over a million dollars. There's a big crew. Um, the topic's interesting. It's a really dramatic film. Must and feel like an awesome opportunity. It was an amazing opportunity. And at that point, I, I feel like I only got that because I'd earned, you know, one, I had earned the relationship with Megan after working with her for so long. Um, and we weren't good friends. We weren't, like, close or anything. We just had been on sets together for so long. So she just knew my work ethic and my attitude. And then she saw these couple movies I had done. And she's like, you know, there's this guy in Seattle. I think I could just make this work. So I do, I do Eden, and now I'm in this position where people are actually starting to approach me for movies. And that's when the job gets tricky because all these things come into play. One, like you have to make a living. You have to make money. And, and it also you're very excited. Like people are asking you to shoot a movie. Um, that is a, a very powerful feeling because they're, they're making such an investment in you. Like, I mean – Granted, the directors and the producer are the most important things, but, you know. Yeah, they're looking at you, though, for how. Yeah, they're looking at you, exactly. You know, me and the production designer are the two, and the AD are, like, the, the people who are actually going to turn these ideas into something real. And if we fail at that, then that million dollars that you spent kind of is meaningless, you know. And, um, and, you know, hopefully you'll get some good performances out of it. But otherwise, the film could be a mess. So, so it's very exciting to get that call. And then you have to be able to step back from all that and be like, okay, like, is this going to be an interesting movie? Um, beyond, you know, am I going to make, I obviously have to make money, but, but do I believe in this project? Is the story interesting? Is the filmmaker interesting? Because if you can't check those boxes, then you run the risk of committing a huge chunk of time. I mean, and that's the other thing, like commercial, whatever, it's a few days. You, you commit to a movie, like it's a minimum of two months and maybe it's three months and if that movie fails, you've now foregone all these other opportunities, even maybe if it's just some interesting music videos or other things. But, you know, you have to feel like it's going to pro propel your craft and it's going to ask you to do something you haven't done before. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do. And, and I think it was right around Eden is when I started turning down projects. And you feel like you're a crazy person. You're like, why on earth would I? You know, one, it's an opportunity to get more experience, which I really need. Two, it's a chance to work with new people, which I really need to do. Um, but you have to really just stop and look at the material and be like, do you believe in this project? Like, is this going to be good? And, you know, if it is good, you have a lot less chance of getting asked in the first place. If you have a good, And this is what I'm realizing in the studio world. If there's a good studio movie, all the best DPs in the world are up for that job. You know, it's not like, oh, cool, you know, I have a chance at some of these things. It's like, no, dude, like, you know, check yourself. Yeah. And so as an indie DP, this is not an easy thing to do. And it's very hard to find. And you can make some slip-ups along the way. And I turned down some films. I, I probably should have found a way to, to shoot. And um, But I will say I've been pretty proud in that, you know, to establish this journey or this direction for choosing projects, um, at first it was accidental, but then it became intentional. And it's not repeating yourself. And, mm. you know, after Eden, the next movie was, um, was it Felt Like Love, I think. And, you know, those movies couldn't have been more further apart. And it was interesting to go from Eden, which was like a million and a half full crew, or at least full indie crew. Yeah. And more or less all the things that you needed to make a good movie or an interesting movie. And then I get this script from Eliza Hittman and I'm in New York and I'm shooting like behind the scenes photo shoots. I'm like super broke, just shooting anything I can in New York. And then I get this script and she's going to self-finance. It's $30,000. She has no money. I wouldn't get paid anything. And, uh, 
you know, I, you know, a lot, a lot of the pieces of me were like, you got to walk away from this. Um, but I read the script and I was like, holy shit, this is so good. And then I watched her short and I was like, holy shit, this is so good. Um, and I was like, we just, I have to figure out a way to make this work. And, um, you know, as a lot of other DPs did, and we can talk about this later too, but, you know, ended up owning some gear along the way and, and at that time had a red. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, if we, if you guys can rent the camera, then at least I'll make a tiny bit of money. And, um, and I just found a way to do the job because I really believed in it. And sure enough, like, I think that movie, probably more so than any other film, like, really changed my trajectory. And it was so different from Eden, you know, like... Do you think that you're trying to do different things because out of fear of, like, a pigeonholing into a certain way? And it's, it's super real. And I've worked with some great DP, I've, I've known some great DPs that, you know, you do two romantic comedies that are somewhat successful, like, good luck getting anything else. Because wow. if those movies go to Sundance or go to Cannes or go to Tribeca, everyone's like, oh, like, that's the guy or that's the gal who can who does these, these like, you know, naturalistic, pretty, but but gritty romantic comedies. And, like, that's just the script you're going to get. Um, and not to say that, that, you know, there aren't some visionary directors who are like, what if we took that person and mated them with a sci-fi? That does exist, but it's far more rare. It's, you know, well, it seems like you do get to that place where people are, you know, once you make two or three really good things, people assess what those two or three really good things are. And if they are varied in genre, they go, oh, he can do, he has the range. And if those two or three things are the same genre, they go, oh, he can do that. And then like... That's exactly that, right. And that's now you're exactly handcuffed right. or not. And now you're like, handcuffed. And I, and I witnessed it firsthand. And, that, and so and I think subconsciously, more than consciously, I was like, I just need to, to vary it up. And I don't want to get stuck here. So you look at like the movies after Eden, it was like, in, it felt like love, and then uh, Kumiko, the treasure hunter. I went from like I want to talk smallest, about Kumiko. Yeah, I mean, going from like handheld documentary, following these kids around, to like the insane formality that Kumiko was. It was it's like a gorgeous, Cohen Brothers man. movie. Yeah, and and it was like going back to lighting. It was going back to all of these things that I hadn't really accessed in a really long time. Um, but I knew it was like, and it, it's kind of in a way like when you're on a call with a director about a movie, mm. if yeah. you get this feeling like oh shit i don't know if i can do this then you know it's the next job and i and i <laughs> kind of look forward to that moment of like am i like do i feel nervous do i feel like i could fuck this up because if i feel that way then you know then you know it's like this is the thing like get outside yeah. your comfort zone like break yeah. down all these walls and challenge yourself and i gotta say every every movie since kumiko i felt that way i mean or really from It Felt Like Love, and or even Eden. Like, you think about, like, going from Kumiko to Green Room, again, like, such an insane thing. Also, ship. yeah, yeah. But that's... And then you kind of get addicted to it. And then you're like, oh, well, now I, you know, now I want every movie to be so different than the last. And you're right. When people see those three movies, um, and, and the, the genius thing is, those things don't even have, those movies don't even have the same audience. So someone's going to watch It Felt Like Love, and then three years later, I'm going to get a script because someone saw that movie. And then the year after that, someone's going to, I'm going to get a script like Green Room because someone saw that movie and not Rough Night. Or, you know, they saw a Mike Mills movie. So by varying it up, you're always making sure that the scripts that are coming in are varied as well. And you're just kind of like opening so many more doors and being like, oh, I, you know, I shoot every romantic comedy that they have that's out there. Yeah, no, and that, that it's this thing that you have to constantly be essentially fighting for. Yeah. I mean... It's and so when, once you got to Kumiko and you went essentially you went back to really lighting. How did that um, approach 
And I, it seems like the approach changed full circle versus what you had been doing previously. And how, how did you go about that? Like, I mean, again, I was, I was very nervous. I'd never worked with these filmmakers before. It was actually a very loose connection, partly from Megan, um, actually, and, uh, and then through another filmmaker that I worked with that I adore, Todd Rohal. And we were supposed to do a movie together, and, and it was, you know, that's a whole other topic of conversation. Just these movies you end up having to turn down for various reasons, and, mm -hmm. and Todd is one of those really tragic breakups where I just couldn't do it. Um, and, um, but anyway, so it was really a, I think they had a DP on for a long time and as they got closer, they just realized there wasn't going to be a good fit. And so here they are, they're finally greenlit for this really ambitious movie to get made and they don't have that much time. And so they reached out to their immediate friends. And I think Todd was like, you know, you should, you should talk to Sean. And I'd never done anything like that. Never shot. I shot internationally, but not, nothing so formal. Um, and, and I didn't have that much to go. I had Eden and I had, it felt like love. And, you know, that's where the visionary directors come into play. I think they saw those movies and there was some thread in there that they responded to. And it wasn't because they saw something that was their movie or, or very close to what they wanted their movie to look like. They were just like, oh, this guy's doing something interesting. And, um, and again, I felt, I felt super nervous about the whole thing. I was going to work with an international crew um, to try to pull off a really ambitious look. And, but I think, you know, somehow, and I think this really goes for every DP, all of your previous work, um, they're all stepping stones, no matter what. And you're going to be pulling back to like old stuff, new stuff, whatever. And it's not that you're building a repertoire that you can simply recreate, but you, they're building, they're shaping something that you can access, some sort of like, large net neural network of ideas that you can yeah. think, okay, I'm going to like fuse these two ideas, one from one movie and one from another, and then like add this new thing and, and see what I can do. Well, the, yeah, that brings me into just talking about more technical things that I was curious about, um, especially considering how things are changing between something like Kumiko and Rough Night, just because in terms of like the lighting and blocking that you were doing on Kumiko, where it at least felt as a viewer, you know, you're lighting a beautiful scene and how, where, wherever anybody falls, that's okay because they're being, they're, they're, they're part of the scene and the scene is taking precedent over any one individual. But Rough Night being a comedy, having um, some high level talent, you know, they, they might be lit purposefully, you know, as a priority over the scene itself. And just curious, like how you approach that stuff. That's very astute. And like, there's two, generally there's two schools and obviously there's DPs that, cross back and forth all the time um but there's generally like you're either lighting people or you're lighting a space and um and i was really you know i was reading you know some uh gosh, it'll, it'll come like masters of light and some of these great great dp books um yeah and and those dps are all over the place and some of them are like you know i spent all my time on the background and then the last five minutes i like throw a key light up and it's always the same key light and i don't really care and then there's some DPs who are like, no, it's all about modeling the face and the human being. And then, you know, it's just background. Like, you know, just, it doesn't really matter. So uh, I, I love that. And I love that there was no right or wrong to it. Um, and I, I do still oscillate. And I really just, you, do, you, Clearly. Feel out the, you feel out the film, you feel out the moment, really. Um, but traditionally, and certainly with Kumiko, I mean, you're right on. Like that movie was about creating an atmosphere and an ambiance, and in every, in all these shots were so wide. Usually, anyway, so you just set up a, an experience. And and Rinka was so incredible because she had the experience as an actor. She like hit the lights. 
she just knew what she was doing, you know, and I could have these great conversations with her and with David um, about a shot or a scene. And like one of my favorites is like this shot just in her apartment and there's like a mirror in the corner and we were like, okay, if you stand here, you're going to be the reflection. If you stand here, you're silhouetted in the window. If you stand here, you're like in the side light close up. And if you're here, you're off camera. And she could just internalize all that. And David and her talked a little bit, but he wasn't like, for this line, you're here. For, you know, he didn't really mechanic and, you know, make it mechanical. Um, and she just, she just internalized all that and then performed the scene. And it was so mm-hmm. exciting to watch because she brought those ideas to life. And she brought those beats and made it something meaningful and special where another actor would just throw it all away and be like, oh, well, geez, you're off camera for half of the shot. Like, we can't even yeah. use this. It is pretty humbling, isn't it? That, like, you can set up the most beautiful thing and then it's really not up to you if it's going to work or not. <laughs> Absolutely. And I had moments, you know, on, on Mike's movie, uh, just to jump ahead with Annette Benning again, like, just this incredible pillar of, like, filmmaking history and, and just so good at what she does and loves what she does so much. And we would be blocking a shot and, and like, kind of pitching ideas to Mike or, you know, however, this, however a rehearsal was unfolding. And I was like, you know, if Annette didn't know all of this stuff, she could make me look so bad so easily. You know, if she, like, walked through the kitchen and delivered her line in the wrong spot, like, Mike would look at me like, like, dude, are you done? Because this doesn't look so good. She knows. She knows where to stand. She knows where to look. She knows where it's going to be interesting. And it's important to acknowledge that that's not, one, it's not easy. Two, it's changing. You know, it's not the days where the 10K is behind the camera and it's like, okay, well, I know if I turn and favor my left cheek, then, like, everything's going to line up. Yeah, it becomes less obvious. Yeah, we're using bounce sources. Sometimes I'm using passive still only. Sometimes there's not even a light in the in the room, and and it and the actors really have to. I don't know if they're working harder or if they're just like just fuck it. Like obviously, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to stand. Um, but with Annette, like she just got it, and she just could show up and be there and make these moments that could easily have been throwaways like so powerful. Um, and so it is, it's a dance. And I learned on Kumiko the importance of that dance with the actors. And I wouldn't say I, you know, I, you can overstep your boundaries, certainly with a DP, but I try to maintain close relationships with the actors in a very professional way on set and, and keep them involved. And I had yeah. an experience with Rinko because it, if we're doing something really complicated. Just bring her the monitor, you know, like let her do it. She knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and where, you know, I, in my, in, you know, as an AC, I was always trained never, never, never let the, you know, let the talent see the monitor. And sometimes I won't. And sometimes I'll scold an AC for. Well, yeah, you're also not the, the, the department head at that point. So you can't make that call. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of what you're saying about uh, the, the vibe in the room, you know, what's interesting about Rough Night is in, in actually, if anything, I'm pulling from those previous experiences because we were going to have to work so fast that I had to light it in a way that they actually could kind of be everywhere in anywhere. Yeah. Well, that, that room in particular, like that building in particular with all of that really soft ambient top light, it kind of just, it, people could go where like a lot of places in that room. And I think it was always working. Yeah. You just didn't have a lot of choices. And if I had set up, you know, these really interesting pockets of light and this and that, and we could control it and I had time, 
then great. But this was not that movie. It was- well, because I was going to ask the, this question, you know, because I could see coming off something like Kumiko where you're painting with light and it's gorgeous and you have someone who is making it even sing more because they understand how to operate within it. You know, to go to something like Rough Night, why, where was the allure besides on a simple, in a simple vein, just going to a big studio project? Where was the allure creatively? Because I could see that being, you know, there's less... Um, what might be the word, or, or, or tour nature with the, with the cinematography. Oh, there's no question. Um, and we're going to get into like some very vulnerable uh, territory here. But I feel like, you know, a couple things are happening. One, um, I'm getting more and more acknowledgement for the work. I'm getting more and more film offers. We're able to get even pickier and even pickier. And now um, the journey is remaining the same, like consistently being inconsistent, like, always choosing something that you haven't done that's going to push a boundary that's going to put me outside of my comfort zone. I think that was a big part of it. Simultaneously, you know, coming from New York, I had, you know, me and my newlywed wife, we have very low overhead. We're hanging out in New York. We can kind of do whatever. Like I could take a $30,000 movie because I love the script. Um, Flash forward four years, like at the time of Rough Night, you know, five years later, I have two kids. You know, I have my wife. We live out in the middle of like nowhere in Oregon in a trailer right now. We're trying to build a house. Like (laughs) our lives have, have taken um have taken kind of precedence and now our lifestyle and what we're doing here uh, is as important and in some cases it's more important than the work and i've had to kind of become i'm now you know she was in film for a long time but after after the kids it was like you know she it just made more sense for her to be home and and it could have easily been me if she was making more money at the time and so now i i have to be a providing father and that changes the game too and, um, yeah, all of those things kind of came together when the Rough Night conversation happened. And when I first looked at the script, I was like, there's no way I'm the right guy for this job. You know, this isn't the kind of movie. Because it's a comedy? Well, because it was a comedy, because it was a fairly broad comedy. I was like, this isn't necessarily the kind of thing I was seeing myself doing. I mean, if it was like, you know, if it was, and they got pretty dark, obviously got pretty interesting. And I think that was the allure. It's like, I think Lucia was an allure. I, broad City was so different than other things I'd seen. And yeah, so out yeah. there. And it was like, at least it's not like another, it's not like Dumb and Dumber. It's not, it's not like just broad for the sake of broad. It's like, we're going, she wants to do something that's, that's grabbing some of the, the broad comedy genre elements, but then also she's trying to do something a little different. I was like, well, if I'm going to do a comedy, um, this one felt right. She's more of, at least as a director, she's kind of more in line with, I would want to push some boundaries a little bit. And by the same time, you know, where I'm having always having conversations with my agents who've been so supportive about all of these decisions. And we're like, you know, well, the next movie, you know, I'm getting lots of offers for really interesting smaller films. But this is an opportunity to kind of to crack open the studio door, which traditionally only happens on horror films or comedy films. So the two genres that they can take risks on with crew. Yeah, yeah, that makes they, sense. Because they're more formulaic and they know they're going to make a certain amount of money kind of no matter what. And, you know, to be fair, like what a huge risk Sony was taking, brand new feature film director, Lucia and Paul, and they want this newish DP who's never done a comedy and never done a, a studio film. Like two really risky propositions. And, uh, you know, kudos to them, although it was so late in the game, it was a little <laughs> distressing that it was like I had three weeks to prep on that movie. But, you know, needless to say, they were like, you know, okay, we'll take this risk. 
So I think that also had weight with me. And the fact that, you know, when I when we found out that not only had the interview gone well, but Lucia wanted me and, and it sounded like Sony was going to approve me, like that was kind of a big deal. And I didn't want to take that lightly. But yes, creatively, I knew it, um, not a step down, not anything like that, but just no. like the job was more logistics. And it was like, okay, you know, I've been focusing on, you know, crafting a movie for several years. Now it's like, can you just pull off a, a bigger movie with bigger tools, larger crew? Just And it's not like, oh, all of a sudden you're on a $20 million movie, so you have all the time in the world. It was the opposite. We had I had less time on that movie than any other movie I've ever worked on. Well, I was going to say, like, there must be uh, kind of like this nerve-wracking thing, I think, especially in talking about blocking and trying, having some moments to figure it out on set, which obviously, I mean, I think, are, you know, they're beneficial for the craft and for, like, finding something even better than what you had gone planning in. But it seems like that room to play is a bit less for a few reasons. And, you know, how did you deal with, how did you deal with that? Especially because you were in a genre that has a certain style of blocking and lighting that you hadn't really done before, certainly at that scale. So that seems like a few things that you're, that you're really juggling. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, and I think that that is probably the, you know, if there's something there that was really luring me into the project, it was that. Figuring it out. Figuring it out. And it's, um, which isn't creative. It's actually all managerial. And, um, and I think I was just kind of at a moment in my life where I was like, well, if I take this job, you know, what are the pros? What are the cons? Obviously, no, it's not, you know, the next Coen Brothers movie or, you know, it's not this real crazy art house interesting period film it's it's a broad studio comedy and the challenge is going to be getting the thing done and getting it done on time and you know lucia and paul are coming from multi-cam tv they have great actors who are working really hard and willing to be on set for as long as it takes and now they're walking into a situation with like you know we have tw- we might have 12 hours on set but like Scarlet's on set for maybe eight. You know, you have all the time in the chair. You have all these other things that we're dealing with. There's, uh, you know, their agents are like, oh, we need her for this. We need her for that. You know, it's just a different animal. And I think I need that experience. And I also felt like my previous experiences were going to put me in a place that I could help guide Paul and Lucia through that process. Yeah. Even a little bit, you know, and um, and that's what the job was. It's like, how do we just get this thing done on time? And at the same time, I am making a comedy. I could be really bullish and be like, no. You know, it's going to have this look and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to like revolutionize the genre. And um, in all that would have done is cost Paul and Lucia time. And it would have taken their eight hours of shooting and whittled it down to like six or five. And now they're trying to, cra- you know, now they're trying to like get not only the script in the can, but like it's a comedy. They want alts. They want to like let the actors improvise. Yeah. They want to try things out. They like, oh, this joke doesn't land. What else is funny? Well, you know what's cool? What I'm gathering from it all is just that you feel you seem like a really holistically minded person, and I can I could just see that like why conversations with you from from other people that are thinking about hiring you like where the excitement comes from is because you're not only thinking about your cinematography bottom line, uh, the visual bottom line, you're, like your bottom line is the movies, and you know that's that obviously has to speak volumes to people. That's got it. Like that's 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 bigger than anything. That's funny you say that. I mean, I remember talking with Jeremy Sonier in one of our first interviews on Green Room. And again, like, you know, cool script, cool cast, 
decent budget. Like he he kind of had his pick of of up and coming indie DPs, um, and certainly some established indie DPs. And and I know some of the people he was talking to, and they were far more experienced than I was. And um, and he was a great DP in his own right. So all those things that made me super nervous about even talking with him about him, like what can I bring to the table that these other guys can't or that he can't. Yeah. And uh, and I think you're right. I think ultimately it, it probably came down to, you know, generally my approach is to like, yeah, it's it's very holistic. It's like, how do we, what's the best thing for this movie? And that typically um, earns the style. It's not enforcing a style that could be detrimental to a project. You kind of have to find a way to like make all yes. of this ends meet. And yes. Jeremy was like, you know, he's talking to these other DPs that are actually like really well known. And, and they're, you know, talking to me about like how they would, what fixtures they would use to light the hallways. And this is like on a first or second interview, and I'm like, how would I? I would never even begin to presuppose I'd know how you'd want anything lit or like what fixtures to you like that. Like, what is that even saying? It's saying I don't really care about the material, but here's these cool new lights I want to try out. And it's like I just don't. My head never really worked that way. And granted, obviously, that fascination with technology ends up being so important later on. I mean, rough night, especially. We're in this crazy house. I have to look. Oh, yeah, every you need direction. it. Yeah, you need it, it but, but it's not. It. It's about it's about where you use it. Because I mean, I think one of my things that I was curious about, and 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 I think that the answer has kind of blossomed uh, over the course of the hour, is just like the voice, tone, and aesthetic are being. You're you're open to allowing whatever the situation is to dictate what those things are, and not the other way around. And th- that can't be said for every. DP. No, no, no. And and in fact, most of the time, it's it's probably the opposite. And that's where you get these conflicts and these people putting their foot down. And that's where you get the um, the myths and the legends of these like totally tyrannical DPs who are like, I will not stop for my art. And I'm in the granted, their stuff is fucking beautiful, but you have to ask like, at what cost? And sure, those movies won Academy Awards for cinematography, um, but there was probably some kind of a price to pay. And I remember even hearing stories about some, you know, yeah, like old, like we're not even necessarily old, like some famous DPs, like really take their time on stuff. And sometimes I'm like, man, what am I doing? Like I could be doing such a better job. And I see some of the movies or my commercials or whatever. I'm like, shit, if I had like pushed harder for that mm. tool or that time, I yeah. could have made it look prettier. But then I was like, but then maybe it wouldn't have happened or we wouldn't have got that extra take or we wouldn't have got that funny line or we wouldn't have found this new location we love. You know, all of those things have to add up and you have to truly believe in, in your agenda being one with the film's agenda. And, and to me, that's, that's what's most important. And you're absolutely right. Like when I'm on a project or when I'm in prep, really is when this all happens. You know, Mike Mills is a great example. I talk with him about how, how he wants to make a movie. What does he want his onset experience to feel like? I mean, some directors love tons of gear around, and it makes them feel like they're making something and makes them feel, like, focused and, like, oh, shit, and, like, the stakes are high. Mm. Some directors want to feel like they're rehearsing uh, with no lights on and no crew, and there happens to be a camera in the room, and we're just filming it, and we're letting everything unfold very naturally. It's not my job to come in and be like, this is how I work. These are the lenses I use. These are the lights I use. This is how much time I need for everything. My job is to come in there and be like, how do I support this filmmaker's vision? And that's where that true adaptability and vulnerability and all of these things end up, you know, that to me, that's what's important about the job is not yeah. putting your department first, putting every other department first. Like, how do we, I mean, any day of the week, I'll take a better looking set than a few extra lights because, man, if you have shit to look at, then, like, it doesn't matter how you polish it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's all, 
everything has to work together. Um, and I think that fighting against that is, is it's not beneficial to you, the DP, and it's not beneficial to the film. Yeah, no, it's a cool philosophy. And I think that it also is just more, it's a longer term thing. Because, I mean, you can you can make uh, one project be your be all and end all and you know, who knows if you might burn a bridge by the way that you tyrannically go oh, about it. But it's like, you know what I mean? But if you if you if you last it's long enough, yeah. <laughs> yes, if you last long enough, then I mean, um, you're looking really at a filmography and that ends up. I don't know. There's a there's something special when you get to that when you get to that place. Absolutely. And I think um, and that's an ongoing it's an ongoing struggle. And yeah, I mean, I think it is tough because I think there are some visual sacrifices and I think that there's moments when I look back and I was like, I'm not as good or I'm not producing as good of work as, as I could. And I look at my other peers and I'm like, man, like you look at Greg Frazier's work, you look at like all of these guys, you look at Bradford Young, you're like, these guys are so fucking good. Um, (laughs) And, and how are they getting, how are they getting those looks? How are they getting in, you know, and I actually honestly believe they're probably not that far off in terms of their approach. I don't think those, especially these new younger DPs um, and even the Reed Moranos and the um, you know, Rachel Morrison's. I mean, I think all these people are very filmmaker forward and it's like, how yeah. do we just make this movie kick ass? And and as you get more time and as you get more money or as you get a more visionary director, um, everything unlocks and everything gets to go up to the next level. And that's totally. kind of the, that's the challenge for me is like, you know, in, in After Rough Night, you know, that's what I'm looking for. It's like, okay, what's that next project that's going to ask everything I know about how to plan and manage a film alongside Nadine to success? But also, like, how do we how do we really step this up, and how do we take those extra moments to get really like yeah. just A plus locations, A plus cast, all of that stuff? Because that's that's what's going to change, you know. And it's nice that I mean, you know, the in terms of that long term ca- career mindset, that is, you know, the Rough Night being a great movie in and of itself and a funny comedy, uh, but it's also a stepping stone to to having more sway on the next studio movie and that's just having that holistic and I mean I gotta be honest especially I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast and like myself included I come off sets having that same thought process that that you just articulated in the sense of like what if I did take more time what if I was more particular what if I did push but then you play that other side like but then we wouldn't have gotten this and this wouldn't have happened and like everybody might be mad at each other and it's really it's really nice to hear someone um who is performing at your level have the same thoughts it it, it just like you know it's 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 just nice to hear that you're that that's not a that's not a thing that is only specific to certain levels of of the craft and and certain scopes and if you talk to other DPs, and, and I would say um, probably some some older DPs, you may not. I mean, they might even say that, but their onset experience is not that. You know, they're going to be more like you know this old school, like the image image first, like thing. It's got to work. The weather's not right. This location's not right. You know, whatever it is, and 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 I get it. I get why they're doing that because they want it to be the best they can be, and they want. Uh, they want the movie to look beautiful, um, but I think that it's always got to be um, at what cost. You, know, you just have to always ask that question, and I think uh, that's where that's where it gets tricky. And then you're like, all of a sudden, like you're not the most important person on set, actually. Like <laughs> the director <laughs> and the cast probably are. You got to make that work. So, uh, 
Awesome, man. Well, it's been a real a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm so, it's been great to uh, to hear all your thoughts and and thanks for being so um, you know open about it all. It's been it's been oh, a really sure, great hour. Um, no, that's super right on, man. No, great, and thanks for being so patient with me having the interview. Oh yeah, no worries, no worries at all. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. Cheers.